The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. picked up a book called Bailout Nation several years ago, and I highly recommend all of you get a copy of it. It is a great read. It's a great book. You'll learn an awful lot about what's going on, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about that today. But it was written by a gentleman named Barry Ritholtz. Barry is a, uh, well, first of all, as I was mentioning in the opening segment this morning, if I were to uh, actually go through the whole curriculum vitae here, uh, I would need a two-hour show, and I don't have that. But he is one of the few strategists who saw the coming housing implosion in derivative mess far in advance. I mentioned to you that Dow Jones Market Talk, and I quote, many market observers predict tops and bottoms, but few successfully get their timing right. Jeremy Grantham and Barry Ritholtz sit in that, la- in that latter category. And he was named as one of the 15 most important economic journalists in the United States in 2010. He, wa- he writes for the Washington Post, and he is the CEO of, Infu- of Fusion IQ, a quantitative research firm, and also the author of that book I mentioned to you, Bailout Notion. He runs a finance blog, and this is the easiest way. Peggy's got it over here. She's just sitting on the other side of the desk, and she's got it pulled up. <laughs> Talking about all the things Good he's put stuff, out today, yeah. called the big picture. So you can either go the big picture or follow him at at Ritholtz. We are pleased this morning to have Barry Ritholtz. Barry, welcome to the show. I, I think we're out of time now. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you, Barry. Your PR people need to send out something smaller. Uh, you know, they they put the Cyclopedia Britannica out of print until they came up with your CV. Uh, I'll, let but, you, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. I, I don't really care for PR people, and I don't use them. Um, you don't. Other than when the book came out, the PR people at Wiley were so, uh, let's say, um, unenthused. I, I made them hire somebody for a month. But other than that, it's pretty much I go where I'm asked, and if nobody asks, I'm very happy to sit in my office and, and do my job. Well, we are really happy to have you on the show today, and thank you for taking the time to come on. Uh, now, you're, you've written something just recently, What's Your Outlook on the Markets and the Economy? That was a question you were asked. And there's a segment of that at the end. I, I, I'm going to just start off kind of at the end. You, you say something, I believe, in many factors leading to the delitimization delit- of investing. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, this is, by the way, this is a normal part of, of long-term psychological cycle. And we're kind of jumping into the deep end of the pool right away. But uh, the simplest way to, to think about this is the opposite of love is in hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And so in 1999, everybody loved stocks. Everybody, uh, you know, the NASDAQ had become uh, the, the new sports team that everybody was rooting for. The whole country was really, you know, you couldn't go anywhere and not see national television, um, uh, 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 gyms, bars, wherever you went. There was no escaping it. And now we're 13 years later, long into the process of mom and pop learning to hate, to, to not hate stocks, but just to completely ignore them. And, and you could see the process in how mom and pop jumped from tech stocks to housing, then to gold, and, and then back into stocks. And, and they managed to get burned every, every step of the way. So uh, you can't have a crisis like we had in the financial crisis and have essentially zero prosecutions. During the SNL crisis, Thousands of bankers went to jail, deservedly so. And and this crisis, nobody's gone to jail, uh, other than the you know the poor bastard who who allowed some mortgage broker to fill out his application 
and to misstate his uh, mortgage, and that guy went to jail. Um, but none of the people responsible for abdication of traditional lending standards and um, the it came to be called I'll be gone, you'll be gone bonuses, which is engage in really high-risk, reckless behavior. If it hits, hey, great, you get a great bonus. And if it blows up, who cares if somebody else's money? The taxpayer has been on the hook for all this reckless behavior. And it, that sort of stuff is, is what ultimately led to the writing of Bailout Nation, where, where it's socialism for the bankers, but capitalism for everybody else. And that, you know, you got to be consistent. You have to say, see, either it's an eat what you kill, and if you don't kill anything, you don't eat, or it's socialism, but you don't get to pick and choose what you want based on how connected you are to some senator in Washington, D.C. By the way, that book was a great book. Great read. You did an excellent job with that book. I just, I just want to say from personal experience, it, it, was, it was a great, great book. It, it was my first book, and I didn't know what I was doing, so I went out and hired a lot of really good help. I had a, a deep staff of researchers, so I had a good idea of where I wanted to go, but we found a lot of stuff that was kind of surprising, and I, I kind of wrote it in real time and posted it on, on the blog, on the big picture, um, which is at Ritholtz.com, and I would get all sorts of feedback from readers. Have you seen this? What do you think about that? I'm not sure you understand this. And it's always interesting when some guy who's in the London office of Goldman Sachs running derivatives says, hey, you should look at this. And, I, you know, you could see by their email address where they're coming from. It, it, it's or, or from the, the, uh, the, the server logs of actually where the traffic is originated. So I, I have to say it was a group effort because so many people contributed. Um, and I, I originally didn't want to write the book. It was, it was only because Bill Fleckenstein, who had written Greenspan's Bubbles, which is another really good book, um, didn't want to do a follow-up. And his publisher said, well, who's covering this sort of stuff? And his answer was, Oh, Ritholtz has been all over Bear Stearns. Uh, this was right after Bear collapsed, and he thinks Lehman is next. And you should go talk to him. This is his, uh, this is his uh, wheelhouse. And, and I said no about six times, and finally, uh, flattery apparently can get you everywhere. So uh, that's how the book came about. Well, it's a, it's a great book. Now, what do you think about what's going on now? You know, President Obama came out. Uh, it was in the news this morning that that uh, that Mr. Bernanke had. Uh, uh, has already stayed longer than he anticipated that he would or that he needed to. Uh, there's some rumors going around this morning that Bernanke might actually leave before the end of his term, February next year. We've obviously had a had it was impacted uh, when of talks of, of Operation Taper. Uh, how do you see the landscape right now? Uh, what's going on with the Fed? What do you think the Fed's going to say when they come out tomorrow? Well, there's a there's a couple of all right, let's take that piece by piece. I think it's been made pretty clear from a lot of things that Bernanke has said that, you know, he's had a belly full of D.C. and he's ready to go home. Um, that That's number one. We, we've heard trial balloons about Janet Yellen. My perspective is anybody but Tim Geithner or Larry Summers, and I'm fine. Um, uh, neither of those two guys really, the, uh, uh, neither of the status quo duo should should have that much authority or power. They've They've shown an inability to wield it responsibly in the past. Um, so if Bernanke, uh, you know, if Bernanke goes, uh, I, I think there are a couple of reasons why he wants to go, uh, aside from the fact that D.C. is a, a less than delightful place to live. 
um, and the politics of it are pretty unpleasant. I, I, the, one of the key takeaways that that I've gotten from actually reading his speeches, I don't really care about the Fed minutes as much as what he says in detailed speeches. Um, and it's clear that he thinks the Fed has done about as much as it can do and that Congress isn't holding up their end of, of, of helping the economy recover. In fact, the history of recessions, the history of um, major crashes and crises is that no matter who's in power, they do a ton of spending, and whether it's deficit spending or bond finance, it doesn't matter. They, they do a ton of fiscal stimulus. Whoever's out of power complains about it. And then a few years later, the role switched, and now the people who are out of power are in power, and guess what? They do the same thing. The difference this time is we haven't seen the same sort of fiscal stimulus that we usually see. Right, and they're... Yeah, you're right, and the response from the QEs is getting less and less. The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. All right, Barry, uh, before we went to the break, I was talking a little bit about the article that came out this morning, and I just would like you to cover one area of a point you made in the article, is that you, you talked in the article about the fact that stocks and the, economic, and the, and the economy are basically wholly un, un, uncorrelated, that there's a, apparently a disconnect between the stock market and what's really going on in the underlying economy. Can you, you just touch on that for a minute? Sure. Uh, and I think the reason people misunderstand and, and believe that they're connected is because, look, financial television has 24 hours a day to fill. You get economic data every week, every month. It's on a regular cycle. There's daily news releases, so it gives them some stuff to to actually um, cover. But uh, look, if you step back and look at the really big picture, uh, GDP has been growing at about 3 four to 4% a year over the past century with periods of time when it's elevated and periods of time when it's, when it's depressed. And profits have been growing about twice that, about 6%. So if you look over decades, yes, of course, there's some correlation. You could take the worst economies in the world um, that aren't growing and haven't grown for decades, and I think their stock markets are somewhat similar. But when you start thinking not in terms of decades, but when you look at things in terms of days, weeks, months, even years, it's really hard to find any sort of correlation between the most recent or, or series of recent economic reports and, and what the, the market is doing. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First, if you look at the S&P 500, they get half their profits from overseas. So the impact of U.S. economic data is, is somewhat insulated. If the U.S. is slowing down and Asia is a house of fire, which we've seen at various periods over the past few years, um, uh, you're going to see a lot of profits come from overseas. The other thing that people forget, and, and I'm fond of quoting George Box, who was a professor of statistics, years and years ago, he, he's fond of saying uh, all models are, are wrong, but not useless, meaning uh, in English, I'm going to take that academic jargon and, and reduce it to basic English. Look, we get a bunch of data every month, non-farm payroll and retail sales and down the list, and they're just the product of a bunch of statisticians and economic wonks trying to create some depiction of what the world is like, but their models aren't 
remotely perfect. And and I like to use non-farm payroll as as my favorite example because everybody thinks it's the single most important economic data point there is. And while employment in general is certainly important, the way we measure it is really kind of half-assed. So in the United States, we have about 150 million people in the labor force. In any given month, 4 million people are going to leave their jobs. During that same month, 4 million people are going to start new jobs, plus or minus. It's, it changes from month to month. The net difference between the people quitting and the people starting are the number of new jobs we've created. If more people are starting work than are quitting their jobs, well, then it, it's a net positive. And, and, you know, for the past few years, we've averaged about 150,000 per month. Now, 150,000 out of 150 million is a teeny tiny percentage. It's one-tenth of one percent. But as small as that number is, it's only a preliminary number, and it gets subsequently revised over the next two months. And then a year later, it gets revisited, and then it gets rebenchmarked. So whatever the number comes out, it's almost irrelevant to what the final number is. And so markets, initial reaction and then counter-reaction, you're reacting to what essentially is noise, mostly noise, very little signal. And so what really matters over the long haul is how profitable companies are. And then the psychology is how much are investors willing to pay for each dollar of earnings. And everything else kind of indirectly impacts that. But every academic study that's looked at this, they're just, you cannot find any sort of one-to-one relationship between, hey, when this happens in the economy, here's what markets do. It, it just doesn't show up. In fact, there have been recessions where markets haven't even gone down, and they've actually rallied. So the most obvious thing is, oh, if recession's coming, I want to be out of the market. Um, sometimes markets will rally on that. And if you look at 1987, if you look at that crash, markets crashed for essentially no specific economic reason. So there, right. there are hundreds of anecdotes. When you look at the totality of the economy and the market, there's really no one-to-one relationship, especially if we're looking in, in periods of weeks and months. Yeah. Over decades, it's, it's, it's obviously some relationship. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point, because, and that's why I encourage people that it's their portfolio that counts, it's not the economy that counts. Now, that's speaking right. of portfolios, uh, a lot of people miss this rally. And so you wrote an interesting article on June 14th, what to do if you missed it. So let's, uh, let's hit some of the high points. What should a person do if they've missed this rally? Well, the first thing they should do is ask themselves, gee, why did I miss this rally? This is a generational move off the lows. The Fed has made it very clear that they want to make risk assets um, go up, that they're, they're basically making cash trash. So if you as an individual miss this rally, your first question is should literally be, what am I doing wrong that had me missing a rally that was a once-in-a-lifetime or maybe twice-in-a-lifetime um, sort of situation? So, so the first half of the article is really talking about the psychological problems that we all run into. And in this case, uh, my best guess is that it's the recency effect that everybody is so shell-shocked from the crash um, that they're not looking forward, they're looking backwards, and they're waiting for the next crash. Instead of after each crash, you should be looking for the next bull market, however short it may last, four years, six years, eight years. Um, 
instead of looking backwards, you look forward. So the advice was acknowledge the error you made. Say, hey, I made a mistake. I missed this move. I'm doing something wrong. Stop beating yourself up, you know, and move on. And, and then the third thing I said, which I thought was significant, was, was change the sources you get for your news. So if you've been reading the same doom and gloom websites, if you've been watching the same silliness on television, if you've been paying attention to people who have created a mindset in your head that have allowed you or created a circumstance where you miss this entire move up, uh, time to change sources, time, time to move on. And the rest of the article really was about figure out a process. Most people don't have a plan. You, you mentioned earlier um, something I thought was interesting and, and we've discussed in the office repeatedly. Not only do stocks not know that you own them, um, I, I tell people all the time, stocks don't know what price you own them at. So when someone is holding <laughs> something that's buried, you know, how often are people down 20, 30, 40 percent down and the stock will pop up halfway of the losses and, and the, the answer I hear Hey, you're stuck in that piece of crap. If you want to get out, here's where to get out. I just need it to go up another 10 or 15 points, and then I'm out. Hey, right. stocks don't know where you own it, so you, your purchase price is irrelevant to subsequent stock action or market action. But that comes back to the initial issue, which is where is your plan? Where is your, your approach? Other than reacting emotionally to whatever bit of stupidity happened to come out of the television. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I keep telling me. You need to have a strategy, and... I don't know if you've heard this, but one of my favorite phrases is from John F. Kennedy. The best time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. That, listen, that's Barry, absolutely right. Listen, Barry, thank you for being on with us today. I hope you'll come back. Uh, it was a great show, and thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. You have been listening to a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions.